Uh, before we get started, just need to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, for the men, we're having our uh, men's prayer breakfast on Friday morning at 7.30, so please, what did I say? I was thinking Saturday. I don't know why Friday came out, but Saturday morning. I was just doing that to test you, Cheryl. Uh, Saturday morning at 7.30, okay? And then um, we'll have our deacons meeting following that. Our congregational meeting is on Sunday morning, immediately following the morning uh, worship service. So that is, those are the key announcements right now. Uh, the other thing is, the Chafer Conference is coming up in a little over a month, Mar- March 11th through 13th. And if you'd like to volunteer to help out either in the kitchen or some other capacity, then please register for the conference online as a conference volunteer and indicate where you would like to serve uh, during during the conference. And if you ask have any questions, please ask Cheryl. The other thing about tonight is that we're going to have a special speaker. I will teach until about, we're getting started a little late, so I'll probably go to about 8.20 or so, and then uh, we have a special guest back here at the back, Chris Cohn. Uh, Dr. Christopher Cohn is the president of Calvary University, used to be known as Calvary Bible College up in Kansas City, and they have expanded, and he's been the president there for three years, and it's now known as Calvary University, and they have a seminary. Uh, Tommy Ice is on the faculty there. A number of other very solid men that I know are also on the faculty there. Chris is doing a remarkable job pulling some things together and making it a... uh, Something better probably than what Dallas Seminary was in the 50s and 60s uh, with a higher level of uh, academics and scholarship built on what Dallas did uh, during that during that great era. So uh, since he was in town today for some meetings with Andy uh, Woods, who's the president of Chafer Seminary, and myself and Charlie Clough, who was in via GoToMeeting, uh, as well as an evangelical minister's fellowship at noon today, I asked him to talk a, talk to us a little bit and equate people, not just those of us who are here, but there are a lot of folks who live stream and watch later, and it's good to get the word out about a solid, biblical, biblically-based, uh, hermeneutically sound, dispensational, pro-Israel, uh, university and seminary. So uh, Chris will talk to us a little bit about that. But before we begin, we need to uh, open in prayer. We need to have a few moments of silent prayer because we know that we have to be rightly related to the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that we walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. And when we're walking according to the flesh or the sin nature, the way to recover is to confess sin. When we confess sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And throughout the dispensations, it has been necessary for believers to be cleansed of sin, to be experientially sanctified so that they can be matured uh, in this church age that is done in the power of God the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, it's just such a great privilege to worship you by studying your word, to be refreshed by your word, to be challenged by your word, to be informed and to have our thinking uh, radically reformed by the content of your word. As we study your word, we understand that it gives us a framework for understanding all the issues in life, and that builds a framework for application that we might think first and then live secondly for you, that we may honor and glorify you with everything in our lives. And Father, tonight as we continue our study in Second Samuel, focusing on this, this very important passage that introduces the third uh, unconditional covenant to Israel and its significance for the past and primarily for the future. We pray that you would help us to understand what your word is revealing to us and its significance as we go forward. And we ask your guidance on our thinking in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter chapter 7. For some reason, I was getting, today was a day of way too too many interruptions while I was trying to, there we have Chris's presentation later on up there, while I was trying to um, do my lesson for today. I don't know why it is. I come back from being out of town and I'm jet lagged to the max and everybody wants to call and welcome me home when um, I'll just put Second Samuel 7 up there. Okay. Okay. We're going to look at God's covenant with David. And just a reminder of where we are contextually is the structure of Second Samuel is thematic. It is not chronological. And I'll say more about that probably next week. I'll talk a little bit about it now. But the first 10 chapters are very, very positive. They're organized around God's, the theme of God blessing David and bringing a unity and then an expansion and then ultimately uh, a military peace to uh, the kingdom of David. We One of the reasons that we know that this is before Take, this comes after some of the next chapters is when we get into uh, the following chapters. We talk about David's wars uh, with the Ammonites, but the beginning of chapter 7 says that the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies uh, all around, double use of all there, indicating that that this is at a time when these Wars with the surrounding nations are over with, but that's wouldn't be true if this were chronological. But it's focusing on God's blessing to David, and then in the second division, it focuses on the fact that during this same time period, David was disobedient, and God disciplined David for his sins, and David reaped the consequences. He, he we see the negatives in David's spiritual life. But because David is a man whose heart is totally focused on God, doesn't mean he won't sin. 
even as a mature believer. It doesn't mean you won't sin, but it means that you can recover from sin and God transforms the cursing into blessing. And that's the theme in Second Samuel 11 to 20. And then there are six appendices that evidence the greatness of the Davidic covenant, which is given in Second Samuel 7, and this is covered in the last four chapters of, of this, this book. Then in this section, Second Samuel 1 to 10, we've looked at the first three sections. Now we're on the fourth section. We saw the beginning of David's kingdom from chapter 2 through 4, then God giving David control over Jerusalem in chapter 5, and then God enthroned in Jerusalem as the ark, the throne of God, is being brought into Jerusalem, and that led us to a eight-month study of worship. And then we came back in the previous lesson to begin to look at um, going forward from that, finishing up with chapter 6 and now uh, this evening starting Second Samuel 7 and looking at the importance of the Davidic covenant. So we come to this first verse and this tells us, gives us information that, that probably David bringing the ark into Jerusalem which is the context for chapter 7. Why does he bring the ark into Jerusalem? Because he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build the temple for God. And God in chapter 7 is going to say, no, that's not your role in my plan. And um, so we know that 6 sets the stage for 7. And if seven gives us this important statement that he's, God has given him rest, a very important word in scripture, rest from all his enemies all around, that this whole episode of six and seven probably occurs closer to the end of his reign than where it appears in, in, uh, second Samuel chapter, chapter seven. So let's just look at the narrative background before we get down to the um, <clears throat> down to the details of the of the covenant itself, it came, we're told in verse one it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains." And so David realizes that he has established this his own palace, but that God is still in a mobile home. He's still in a temporary dwelling. And Nathan understands David's motivation and his desire and that this is honorable before God. And so initially, Nathan affirms David's desire. And he says, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night... The word of the Lord, which is a technical term in the scripture, this always announces a, a, a message, a prophetic message to a prophet. And it's an interesting study to trace through uh, the use of that terminology. It ought probably would catch a better nuance if we translated it the message of the Lord. There are other aspects to that that we're not going to go into right now. But this is talking about this new revelation from God to Nathan, and he gives him a different message to David. 
He says, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I haven't dwelt in a house, in a permanent dwelling place, since the time I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Uh, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God says, Where, I understand this idea, but I've never mentioned this, a permanent dwelling place to any of the leaders of Israel since leaving Egypt. Uh, why do you think you should be the one to build this house? And then in verse 8, he tells Nathan, this is what you'll say to my servant David. And this is what immediately forms the background for understanding the uh, the Davidic covenant. God is going to give a, a reminder of what God has done for David. We find this to be true in so, some of the covenant contexts, especially if the covenant is the type known as a suzerain-vassal uh, treaty. That's the Mosaic covenant, and we'll come back and talk about that type of, of covenant uh, a little later on. But the beginning of that is a historical preamble, and there are a lot of scholars that think that all of the Pentateuch, or at least uh, through um, numbers, uh, is based on that that structure, that covenant structure from the ancient Near East. And it would begin with, uh, it was a, a, a covenant that was a common form in the uh, ancient Near East. And it would start with a, it was between a king and a, at, at a vassal or a subordinate king, so a client king. And so what would happen is the great king, the suzerain, would begin by rehearsing historically all of the things that the great king had done for this vassal king before getting into what the king would promise to do in the future and what the, the terms of this new contract would be. And so this is something similar to that because what God is doing is reminding David of what God has done for him and that David has a special place in God's plan. And so in the second part of verse 8, we read God saying, the Lord of hosts emphasizing his role as uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, that emphasizes his sovereignty over history and sovereignty over his creatures. And he said, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And just as a side note there, whenever God is speaking in the Old Testament about my people, for example, in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, a verse that is often quoted today by people who want to use that as a spiritual application to America, if my people who are called by my name, it has no reference to any other group than Israel. It's not, oh, well, we can apply that. No, we can't because the whole structure of Second Samuel uh, 6 and 7 is an answer to Solomon's prayer to God based on the Mosaic Covenant. 
And God had promised in the Mosaic Covenant that if his people disobeyed him, that God would discipline them even to the point of taking them out of the land. And so Solomon prayed, if you do that, also remember your promise in the covenant that if they turn back to you, you will restore them to the land. And so God's answer is, if my people who are called by my name repent, in other words, if they turn, then I will restore them. And you've got to understand it contextually. It has nothing to do with America. It has nothing to do with any other nation in history because no other nation in history has a contractual relationship with God other than Israel. Now, there's a better passage for that idea over in Jeremiah, which where God says, if any nation uh, repents or turns back to me, then I will bless them. That has a universal application, but Second Chronicles 7.14 does not. A funny story about that is that uh, Tommy Ice and I were working through that uh, as young pastors and coming to the same conclusion. And when we wrote our book on spiritual warfare, we used that as an illustration of bad hermeneutics. And not long after that, sometime in the mid-90s, he was asked to speak in chapel at Liberty University, and he decided to speak on that verse as an illustration of bad hermeneutics. He did not know that that year uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell, who was the president of Liberty University, had chosen that verse as the uh, life verse for the uh, university that year to pray for the uh, spiritual renewal of the nation. And so Tommy uh, got up there and basically called Dr. Falwell a hermeneutical heretic. But that is the kind of things that happens every now and then when we put our foot in our mouth. So, um, but that is, you know, we see that again and again. In fact, you can trace that all the way through Kings and all the way through Chronicles. Every time God says, my people, he's always talking about Israel. He's never talking about church-age believers. He's never talking about Gentile Old Testament believers. He's always talking about my people, Israel, as it is stated in, in these verses. So he reminds David that he took him from the sheepfold to make him ruler over my people Israel. And he said, I've been with you wherever you've gone. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is not only have I been with you, but I've cut off all your enemies from before you. See, that reaffirms that what is stated in the first verse, that this is a time when David has defeated all of the national enemies of Israel as well as his personal enemies. And then thirdly, God says, and I have made you a great name like the name of the great men on, on, on the earth. And this is talking about uh, God has built his international uh, reputation. And then in verse 10, he goes on and says, not only have I done this for you, but in addition to doing this for you, I have done this for my people. There we have that phrase again. For my people Israel, I appoint a place for them, which is, of course, the land. So that is a reference to the land covenant. Now, when we get into talking about covenants, we're going to stop and review what we've learned in the past and put this Davidic covenant within the framework of the biblical covenants. But one of the things to remember is that with each each subsequent covenant, builds on 
information and builds on factors that are present in earlier covenants, doesn't redefine them or reinterpret them, but it takes the information that is there in those covenants and with the new information in the new covenant builds a sort of an intersection, an interdependence. So by the time you get to finishing all of the covenants, you realize that there is, especially in the three great covenants that expand the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, that they all come to fulfillment at the time the Messiah comes, that is when they are all in, are enacted, and they are interdependent. And so they, they, you can't have, when, when we get to the end of the revelation on all these covenants, you realize that, that you can't have a situation where one or another comes into effect without the others. They are uh, inter, uh, interdependent and they're, uh, provisions lace together in a in a remarkable way. So we have the uh, introduction of a fulfillment of the an aspect, not fulfillment, but an aspect of the land covenant. When God says, "I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them," and this is all implies something yet in the future. He do, isn't saying, "I have." appointed a place there, and I have planted them there, uh, that is yet future. That planting in security only occurs once the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and the land covenant all come into effect at the same time at the end of the tribulation when the messianic king returns to the earth. He then says... um, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. That tells you that this is not something that has been fulfilled yet. It is all future. When they're restored to the land and no longer will they be displaced from the land uh, based on the fifth cycle of discipline. And then he adds, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. And that phrase, sons of wickedness, we've studied this idiom in Hebrew before where in applying an an attribute to somebody, if they were a murderer, they would be called the son of a murderer. They are reflecting the uh, DNA heritage of being a murderer. And so that's the idea. So if somebody's a fool, they would be called the son of a fool. If they are divine, they'd be called a son of God. So that's the import of that of that imagery. Often, though, in the English, it doesn't translate those phrases. It will often just say you're a fool or a murderer, and you don't realize that what it's actually saying in the Hebrew is son of a fool or son of a murderer or the Old Testament version of S-O-B, a son of Belial. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness. Now, here we learn that that this title of being a, a wicked person is directly related to being anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, that that is a characteristic of a wicked person. Now, in the Old Testament, a wicked person is not just uh, a, a believer who sins. 
a wicked person in the Psalms is frequently contrasted with the righteous. And this confuses a lot of people because uh, it looks like it's talking experientially, but the only way we know who is righteous in the Old Testament is by going back to Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the categories in the Psalms of righteous and wicked reflect believer versus unbeliever, but sometimes the believer can act like an unbeliever and act like a son of wickedness. But here it's talking about these unbelievers who have rejected God's plan for Israel, and they are anti-Semitic, and they oppress Israel. And then in verse 11, he says, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Now, that's an important time reference because this occurs uh, just after the conquest, as there, as, which is covered in the book of Judges. So it takes us back to not the exodus, not to the conquest, but to just after the time that the Israelites, the 12 tribes, had moved into the land, conquered the land. And from that time, uh, he has not given them rest. So since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So from the time of the judges until this time when God says to David, I have given you rest from your enemies. Now he says also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And part of what is going on here is that God is going to establish a house for David. Now, David already has his palace, so this is something where we have to understand that house stands for something more than just a physical dwelling place. It is, has a, 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 it's a double entendre, and house not only stands for the physical house, but it stands for a dynasty that is established for a, a family or for a person. So that is what the promise is, is that God is going to establish for David a house, a dynasty. And then in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So this became the foundation. And when we go through the Davidic covenant here, Look down to verse 16. Verse 16 is a summary statement. It says, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. Those are the three key elements of the Davidic covenant, that, that David is promised an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, that can only happen one of two ways. The first way is for David to have an eternal succession of heirs or for him to have a finite number of heirs that ends with someone who is eternal. And so this sets that stage that the ultimate, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of this is going to be in a person who is eternal, an eternal king. But before we get into all of that, what I want to do is stop and make sure we understand the basics of covenants and the significance of these of these covenants in a little background. First of all, in terms of a covenant, it has a general definition. 
A covenant is a legal instrument. It is like a contract. For example, if you are buying a house, you enter into a mortgage contract with a lender, and there are certain terms that are part of your uh, mortgage agreement. Now, your next-door neighbor may get a loan a week or two before you or after you, and the terms of his loan may be different. He may have a shorter term. He may have a different interest rate. But you can't look at his terms and say, oh, well, I think I want to, his interest rate is less, so I'm going to pay his payment. You can't do that. You have to pay what is written to you. So even though a lot of mortgages are boilerplate, by that I mean they're basically the same language, it's those key elements in terms of the term of the contract and the interest on the contract and maybe the points that are paid at the signing of the contract that differ from one person to another, and you can't take one person's contract and apply it to yourself. In other words, uh, you can't take a contract that God makes with Israel and then apply it in the Old Testament to Gentile nations or apply it in the New Testament to church-age believers or to Uh, Gentiles in the New Testament. In fact, if you do an analysis of all of the uh, judgments or condemnations on the Gentile nations in the prophets, you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all have these oracles, these words of the Lord against Moab and Ammon and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everything else, all these other nations. You'll notice that the nations are never held accountable for anything that is distinctive or unique to the Mosaic Covenant. They are never punished, as Israel is, for violating the sabbatical year. They are never punished, as Israel is, for for idolatry in the sense that is stated in the uh, First and Second Commandments. They are punished for their rejection of God, which is part of the universal covenants that we'll see from the very beginning of Genesis based on what I call the creation the creation covenants. But they are always, the Gentiles are always held accountable for things that are distinctive to the, to the Gentiles or universal, not for anything that is distinctive to, to Israel because that would be, uh, holding somebody else accountable for somebody else's contract, or as some people have put it, uh, you're, you're reading your neighbor's mail and assuming you have the same uh, obligations that they do, and you can apply that to yourself. So you can't go pull out your neighbor's mortgage statement and apply it to yourself. But yet that's what a lot of Christians do. They read the mail to the Jews, and they try to apply that uh, to themselves. So a con- a covenant is a legally ab- binding agreement between two or more parties, especially directed towards performance of some uh, particular action. And so these had various uh, accepted conventions in the Old Testament, and I always ask the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Last week I saw something that said 
what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I went to Amazon and I ordered a chicken or an egg and an egg, and we'll see which comes first. What came first? God's communication of stipulations to man or man's idea of a covenant? Now, that's really an important question. And I believe that it is God's actions in Genesis 1 that are covenantal. And they are not called a covenant. In fact, the first time that we have the word covenant appear is in Genesis chapter 9. So there's no mention of the word covenant beforehand, but I always believe that if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, that it's a duck. And so to say that, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll look at the Noahic covenant. Now, it's, it's pretty standard in, I think, in a lot of circles to talk about the Noahic covenant as the first covenant and to reject the notion that the, there are previous covenants. But let's look at what Genesis 9 said. This is the uh, covenant with Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's the initial statement that orients the covenant. Now, have we, if you've read your Bible starting in Genesis chapter 1 and you've read it through to Genesis chapter 9, have you read Be Fruitful and Multiply and Fill the Earth before? Yes, it goes back to the very first chapter when God creates the man and the woman and he gives them that same command. That command to be fruitful and multiply was a real command that they were supposed to fulfill in the garden. They were not given sexual capabilities to just enjoy themselves. They were to begin to be fruitful and multiply and to uh, produce children in under perfect environment in the garden. But I think that's one reason why we can say that they sinned pretty quickly. What is a consequence of the sin, of the spiritual death. All of the consequences related to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man ultimately relate to mandates that are given in Genesis 1 and 2. They're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but things don't work out so well after sin because now the woman's pain is going to be increased in childbirth. So what we see in the outline of the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 14 and following is that, that in every area of where there's mandates in the perfect environment of Genesis 1 and 2, that there's distortion and corruption. So that man was to rule, Genesis 1, 26, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and he disobe- he, uh, Eve obeys the serpent, and now there's going to be judgment on the animals. There's going to be the serpent is cursed more than the other animals, which indicates that the other animals are also uh, come under judgment, and there's a change biologically, structurally among animals so that 
before the fall, they're all uh, herbivores, and after the fall, they're going to develop into carnivores. And that's going to indicate certain changes within their uh, biological structure, within their uh, dental structure. Things of that nature are going to take place so that, uh, and this is reversed in the millennial kingdom, so that we'll go back and, and lions will eat grass and won't be eating babies and people and uh, other and other animals. So uh, the animal kingdom is affected. So that initial dominion command uh, is is not negated. It's not removed. It's just corrupted so that it's more difficult for man uh, to fulfill that and have dominion over the animals. He's supposed to take care of, keep, and take care of the garden. But now thorns and thistles are going to come up in the garden. And so that that aspect of the original statements, the original mandates in Genesis 1 and 2, are now made more difficult and corrupted because of sin. And the marriage where the woman is to be the helper to the man is now going to be corrupted where the woman wants to uh, exercise authority over the man and the man wants to uh, fight back and exercise oppressive rule over the woman. And this is the beginning of the battle in marriage. So that every sphere that's addressed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is uh, addressed also in Genesis 3. And then those same spheres are addressed in Genesis chapter 9. Um, the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, continues through all of these. So they all relate to that original creation covenant. And I like to talk about it as the, you know, the perfect creation covenant, uh, modification one due to sin, and then modification two due to uh, further corruption prior to the flood. In verse 2, we read, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They, that dread for man wasn't there before the flood. Uh, every moving thing now that lives shall be food for you. Initially, man ate from the fruit of the garden. Man also was an herbivore. Man was prohibited from eating uh, flesh in the uh what I call the the um, Adamic covenant in Genesis chapter 3, but now in uh, the Noahic covenant, he is allowed to eat flesh or mandated actually to eat flesh. And like I always say, the sign of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. But it's not just because there's a promise that God won't won't destroy the earth by water again, but God's mandate to eat meat. So go have a steak. Go have some prime rib. Go eat some fish. That is celebrating the Noahic covenant and also exercise capital punishment. That was not part of the uh, pre-Noahic covenant uh, scenario. But what you see is the same things, the same themes carry through in all of these, all of these covenants. So when I chart it this way, that the Edenic covenant is basically described in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, Genesis chapter 2 to, uh, to keep and guard the garden, uh, and it's mentioned in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. 
Now, this is where there's some disagreement. Hosea 6, 7 says, literally, but like Adam, like Ha-Adam. Adam meaning can be the proper name of Adam, or it can also refer to mankind, and some translations will have mankind. Uh, some will have Adam. And so some say, see, this isn't talking about a covenant with Adam. It's just talking about uh, mankind. And the comparison is that Israel has transgressed their covenant like Adam transgressed the covenant. That's pretty significant that there's an article there. But let's just say for the sake of argument that it's mankind. Well, when did mankind transgress the covenant? When Adam fell. So either way, you end up with Adam being the one, the first person to transgress a covenant. And there was a covenant in the garden. And I think you, I've developed already that if Genesis 9, 1 through uh, 10 is clearly talking about a covenant, and it has the same stipulations as Genesis 3, and those are related to the same categories of stipulations that you have in Genesis 1 and 2, then even though those aren't called covenants, they all must be covenants if Genesis 9 is a, is a covenant. So let me go back here. So we have the Edenic covenant. If it's violated, we have the fall, then God modifies that. Basic stipulations, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth are still there. We have the Adamic covenant. Then there's judgment at the flood, and then the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, 1 through 7. That's still in effect today. Every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded that that covenant is still in effect today. But because of the disobedience and corruption that occurs at the Tower of Babel and the, and the move towards internationalism that occurs there, that God stops working with the whole of the human race, and now he is going to work out his plan through a specific individual and his descendants. And so that's when we have God entering into a covenant with uh, Abraham. It's prefigured in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, with the three basic promises that God would give him uh, a specific piece of real estate, Genesis 12, 7, uh, and that he would provide uh, a seed, descendants more, numer- uh, more numerable than the stars of the heavens and the sands of the, of the sea, and that it would be he would be a blessing to the rest of mankind ultimately that refers to salvation but it refers to many other ways and it's a command for abraham to be a blessing and he was a blessing to those around him in many ways each of these aspects of the abrahamic covenant are then further developed by their own covenant you have the land covenant in deuteronomy 30 that's reaffirmed in its own covenant You have the Davidic covenant, which relates to the expansion of the promise of the seed. Now it's going to come through the line of David. And then the new covenant. None of these are fulfilled until the Messiah comes back. They are not in any way, shape, or form in effect today. Now, uh, Chris is going to come up in a minute and speak. He's written uh, several outstanding books one on dispensationalism today and tomorrow, which is about 400 pages long and is a tremendous upgrade in interacting on the basis of what we would call traditional dispensationalism with current 
uh, ics, acts, and spasms in the church, and he does a great job there. And he's also edited a book called Introduction to the New Covenant, and he has various different people who wrote chapters in that book, including two chapters by Charlie Clough. And that was just outstanding. As you know, I have this group of pastors that meet online together every Friday morning. And since last May, we have worked through a book on the New Covenant, a dispensational understanding of the New Covenant by Mike Stallard, who was formerly the head of the doctoral program at Baptist Bible Seminary, along with uh, Chris's book on Introduction to the New Covenant. And we've got about 20 to 25 pastors who joined together every Friday morning, and it has really upgraded all of our understandings on the issues related to the New Covenant. I think most of us were pretty much in alignment with the basic thesis that the New Covenant is only with Israel, and it's only going to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. But since the last time I really did a deep dive on the New Covenant, which was about 12 years ago, you know, a lot of discussions went on with the Dispensational Hermeneutic Study Group at Baptist Bible Seminary. I think they met in 2010, and the whole topic was on uh, the New Covenant. And and there were some things that came out in that discussion and debate. There's more disagreement over the nature of the New Covenant and the church age than any other area in dispensationalism. And so it was good to read through that book and also Chris's book and and tighten and refine and articulate more clearly uh, the position that, that I've always held to. But all of these are, are not fulfilled, and they're not in any way, shape, or form present today. And the Jewish covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is a, is a temporary covenant. There are also some other covenants in the, in the Old Testament that are not national covenants, and we'll talk about those Uh, next time, but this gives us a basic orientation to the covenants and where the Davidic covenant fits within God's plan for Israel. And ultimately, that is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come as the eternal king at the end of the tribulation. He is not a king until then, and he does not receive the kingdom until then, and so it is not appropriate to refer to him now as King Jesus or to talk now about doing things for the kingdom, which is standard, sloppy, evangelical language today, and it really doesn't reflect a biblical view of these things. So we'll talk about the elements of the Davidic covenant next time, and then from there we'll go into the, its implications for other areas of theology. I'm going to pray. While I'm praying, I'm going to ask Chris to go ahead and come up, and then we'll do a seamless shift to his uh, PowerPoint, and he's going to uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what's going on at Calvary University, his ministry, things of that nature, which I think we'll all be very interested in. Father, thank you for this time we've had in your word to be challenged by your purpose, your plan in history, especially your plan through Abraham and his descendants, the way you have been faithful to those covenants despite human unfaithfulness. And, Father, we look forward to the return of our Lord to establish the kingdom as we will be with him as his body and bride. Father, we uh, continue to pray for 
this church, this congregation, the challenge to grow spiritually and not to take lightly our identity in Christ and all that you have given us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Good evening. Thank you, Robbie, very much for uh, uh, for for the gracious invitation to be able to to share with you all. It's great to be with you, and uh, there's there's nothing quite so uh, enjoyable as looking at God's promises and understanding His covenants and what He's done. Uh, because it reminds us uh, that he makes promises and he keeps promises throughout the ages, and we can trust him, which has implications for every single day for us. And I, I am just uh, very much a, a appreciative of that. Uh, and as, as we did the work on the on the new covenant, especially, and, and looking at what God had done there and what was intended, it just raises our our, our level of faith and appreciation for who God is. So. I'm just uh, privileged to be able to share in the fellowship this evening and and uh, be able to learn from Robbie and uh, be reinforced on the <clears throat> on the, uh, the Davidic covenant. Now, uh, I was going to make a joke about uh, uh, coming up here and teaching Second Samuel seven and explaining why it's why it's uh, pertaining to America, but that would be a dumb joke, especially. Uh, so I won't even go there. But it's, it's one of the one of the passages that I use often as an illustration uh, for for bad hermeneutics. And and I, I chuckled when Robbie mentioned the the story of Tommy doing that at Liberty because because uh, Tommy's not at Liberty anymore. He's at Calvary. <laughs> so that's not necessarily how he got there. But let me see if I can. Uh, there we go. That's what I that's what I'm after. Uh, so. Robbie asked me if I would uh, share a little bit about Calvary University, and, and I just uh, just have to also teach a little bit of Scripture as well, because what we're doing at Calvary is really focused on uh, uh, on, on serving the Lord and being faithful to His Word. Um, so I'll give you just a little bit of story here. Uh, Calvary University was established in 1932 by a, a, a group of leaders in Bible churches coming together trying to train up uh, men and women for uh, for uh, continued growth and leadership and uh, just focusing on the Word of God. And as as the school was, was founded, it was initially a, an institute, and it, uh, it, it merged over the years with uh, several different schools and ultimately became a Bible college. And... Uh, over the years, Calvary, while always staying true to its mission, uh, has found itself in a position to have greater impact than they, they really would have imagined initially. So uh, there's an undergraduate college, there's a, a graduate school and a seminary, and these three elements, along with about 60 different degree programs and uh, in a number of different fields, uh, just have taken it far beyond the traditional scope of a, of a Bible college. Now, the heart and soul is always God's Word, and we'll talk about that here shortly. But uh, when, I, when I arrived uh, three years ago, uh, 
Um, and actually, before I arrived, as I was talking with the board beforehand and doing my research and analysis on the school, I said, regardless of whether you bring me here, you really need to rebrand to Calvary University. Uh, uh, not at all to compromise or to depart from God's word, of course, but to uh, to make sure that you are maximizing the opportunity that you have with your students. Uh, they were having students come to them, for example, who were wanting to be in missions and couldn't get into various countries because of the Bible college terminology and asking the school to uh, to print, reprint their diploma that would just say Calvary and not Calvary Bible College. So uh, challenges like that. And so in any case, as, as they did decide to, to bring me on, I've been there now three years and really just love the ministry there and love the folks and the opportunity there to, to serve in the Kansas City area, uh, we've, we've been able to grow and expand and, and have really been uh, focused on some things. I just want to share these with you. And you'll notice the, the logo, the, the cross. I call it the global cross. We don't have a, a, an official name for it, but I think it's a fantastic design because it just shows the, uh, that uh, the, the cross uh, covers the globe, and we have a responsibility to make disciples uh, around the world. So... Our mission is to prepare Christians to live and serve in the church and the world according to the biblical worldview. That's what the school is all about. That's what it's always been about. That's the focus. And you can parse this a little bit. It's preparing Christians. So it's a discipleship ministry. It's focused on training up believers. So to attend Calvary, you have to have a testimony that you know Christ and you have to have a demonstrated commitment to growth. So we're investing in believers, and this is one of our graduations and one of our graduates here, and he's holding a Bible there under his cap. Uh, but preparing Christians to live and to serve. Sometimes we focus so much on serving, we forget that uh, God calls us to live a certain way. Uh, I think about Ezra 7.10 where Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and then to teach it. And it's a good reminder that we have to live and, and walk with our Lord first, and then we, we find avenues to serve him. So that, that dual, dual focus is important. And then the, the context is in the church and in the world. Uh, God's work starts in the church and is designed for the saints to do the work of service and go out in the world and, and be uh, effective in ministry. And so we're trying to prepare st uh, students to, to work in both of those contexts. And it all is undergirded according to the, the definite article, biblical worldview. And that, that was one change that I added when I got there. It's the same mission Calvary's had for many years, but it, there was uh, the de indefinite article in the uh, uh, serve in the church and in the world according to a biblical worldview. And uh, we changed that to the because there's only one. There's only one, one biblical worldview. And so there are four uh, foundational distinctives and, and key components uh, whereby we're, we're committed to fulfilling this mission. I want to share these with you. Uh, first of all is distinctive number one, we are standing firm and built on the Bible. Okay? And not willing to compromise on the truth of God's word, standing firm and built on the Bible. In other words, our various programs are, are set up not to integrate scripture, but to be undergirded by scripture. The various disciplines that we're committed to teaching, whether it's uh, business or uh, education or English or music or theater, these various disciplines, uh, we're trying to 
understand those disciplines through the lens of Scripture and, and build on Scripture with Scripture so that people, when they graduate, understand how God views those disciplines and how the Word of God uh, educates on those disciplines so they can go and make a difference in the church and in the world. Every student also will get a, a double major. They'll get a major in whatever that discipline is and a major in Bible and theology. So this is a very significant commitment. It's first and foremost for us. And the idea is that it's, it's all about the Bible. That's, that's the focus. Everything we're doing is all centered on God's Word. And as I think about some of the passages, as we're, as we're putting these distinctives together and thinking through why these are so important, uh, there's some relevant verses here. I think of uh, Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10. And these passages tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And the fear of the Lord is, a, is a, obviously the key to all of that. So how do we develop the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs 2.6 tells us that the fear of the Lord comes from the mouth of the Lord. And, of course, what's he talking about there in, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 6, is he's talking about the Word of God. And so uh, how, could we, how could we pursue knowledge, wisdom, or understanding? How could we be an effective institution for higher learning if we are not beginning with the fear of the Lord, and how can we uh, have the fear of the Lord if we are not rooted in God's Word? So this is the heartbeat of, of Calvary. And Colossians 2 gives us the negative side, warning believers not to be uh, deceived and, and taken in by, uh, by these, these philosophies that are not according to Christ. And the implication in that passage uh, is that there's a, there is philosophy according to Christ. Let's just let's go over there for just a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter two, and we'll play with this for just a moment. Notice uh, he says, Paul says to the Colossians, "See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception." Now some suggest that because this word uh, uh, philosophia is used here, that well that means philosophy is bad. Okay. But notice what he says. No one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and then notice the other side, rather than according to Christ. In other words, he's saying there's a, there's a philosophy according to Christ, and then there's a philosophy according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. He's saying don't be captivated by that, but instead have a philosophy that is according to Christ. And as we approach every discipline that we're engaging and training our students in, that's what we're doing. We're trying to uh, train them up in the philosophy according to Christ. Of course, philosophy, as you know, is simply the affection for wisdom, love of wisdom. Right? Well, if we love wisdom, where does wisdom start? The fear of the Lord. Where do we get the fear of the Lord? From the mouth of God, which is the word of God. Right. So you, you, you can't have a good philosophy without it being rooted in the word of God. That's a key component for us. It's all about, it's all about God's word. A second aspect of this, of this first distinctive for us, being uh, firmly rooted in scripture, is that we're very transparent and firm in our doctrine in our teaching. And uh, in, in an age where uh, many, uh, many schools are compromising, uh, 
I'm so thankful for Calvary and Calvary's leadership over the past 80, 87 years because they have, uh, they have been faithful not to compromise, not to lose sight of the truths of God, God's word. And they've been very transparent about that. There's such a such a focus on love as an outcome these days, and and the compromise to get there instead of speaking the truth in love, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4:15. Always speaking the truth in love, grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head of even Christ. If if we aren't speaking the truth in love and we're focused on one or the other and not both, then we're not going to grow up well, and we're certainly not going to be able to disciple well. And I appreciate so much Paul's words in First Timothy chapter one, uh, in really in verse five through seven, he says in verse five, but the goal, the telos, the 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 purpose or the outcome of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love. We we need the love. We need to demonstrate the love, and if we're not doing that, we're doing it wrong. But the reality is the instruction, the teaching helps us get there. And if we don't have the instruction and the teaching, then we're not going to have the right kind of love. We're not even going to understand what that is. And Paul reminds us in the next two verses, in verses 6 and 7, that uh, some straying from these teachings have turned aside into fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers, but they don't even understand these, these matters. And so they're not going to have the right kind of love. They're not going to achieve that goal only Pure doctrine, sound teaching will be able to accomplish that. So it's got to be rooted in God's word. So distinctive number one, our our heartbeat is uh, standing firm, built on the Bible. No compromises. And I'm so appreciated, uh, appreciative of, of Calvary's faculty and staff and board and leadership over the years that's remained faithful to that. And, uh, you know, we will not hire any faculty or staff unless they can sign full agreement with our doctrinal statement. Uh, and so it, it's a, a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous thing. It's a challenge, um, but it creates a great amount of unity because we're we're like-minded in that. Now, the second uh, major distinctive is a little bit uh, challenging to some: high quality and low cost. And uh, nobody is attempting that because it's crazy. It's impossible. If you have high quality, there's expense that comes with that. The higher the quality, in fact, the greater the expense. Uh, or if you're trying to maintain a low cost, well, you have to sacrifice quality. In business, that's pretty typical. But I don't believe in that. I don't believe uh, that when we're talking about uh, educating people and we're talking about especially something that God has designed, that we should be sacrificing quality uh, in order to maintain a reasonable cost. So we're committed to pursuing both of these things at the same time. And notice it's not two separate distinctives. It's one. It's one distinctive. And here's, here's what it looks like a little bit. Uh, first of all, there's a, there's a commitment to academic excellence. And, and not just academic, but in every area, we're pursuing excellence. You know, I think about uh, Philippians 4, 8, 9, where he's, Paul is telling believers to, to think about and, and to be immersed in these things that are excellent. Uh, I think about uh, 
Paul telling the Thessalonians as he's commending them in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1 and then in verse 10, he's commending them and he tells them to excel still more. And I love the English translation there. He uses the word excel, just excel still more. That uh, for us as believers, we never arrive uh, at uh, good enough, if you will. We're, we're, we're walking with Christ, pursuing Christ, and we can always, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, we can always excel still more. We can always continue to grow and continue to uh, be better. The other side of that, so there's the quality side, and the other side of that is is this commitment to stewardship that uh, uh, that we're we're uh, uh, very focused on. I think of these passages in Proverbs, Proverbs six one through five, and then uh, twenty two, twenty six, and twenty seven that warn of the dangers of indebtedness. Uh, And we have, in in our country, we have a crisis of student debt. It's absolutely incredible. It's the the next big bubble, if you will. Uh, I want to say there's something like $2 trillion of student debt. It's just an unbelievable number. And uh, uh, Calvary has been ranked as the number six school in the country for lowest student debt upon graduation. So I'm thankful for Calvary's commitment and their leadership in previous years and earlier administrations to to accomplishing this. And Calvary is not in debt, owns all of their the properties and the uh, the campuses that we have. Uh, we're committed to these these principles, and if we're committed to these principles for ourselves, we also need to be committed to these principles for our students. So we we've got to find a way to be able to uh, keep our students from being indebted. So there are a number of ways that we do that. We have a study work program where we have students working uh, and have opportunity to to pay off their uh, their education as they're going through it. Uh, we're also we we scholarship very heavily, whether it's funded or not. Uh, we can always use support in in uh, in that way, but we're committed to doing it whether people support us or not. And what we found is the more generous we are, uh, the more God provides. Uh, he doesn't promise to do it that way, but that's just how that's just how it's it's uh, it's happened in these past few years. So we're committed to those two things: uh, uh, to being firmly rooted in Scripture and having a, a high-quality and low-cost model. There's a third distinctive that that uh, really uh, we believe sets sets Calvary apart, and this is one of the really uh, exciting things about, about Calvary. Now, I, was, I was president of Tyndale Seminary in Fort Worth for about eight years, and uh, Tyndale and, and Chafer are very, very similar, very like-minded, uh, and are committed to just educating people for ministry, especially. And accreditation is totally irrelevant to that. The, the state accreditation and recognized accreditation is, is irrelevant, has nothing whatsoever to do with whether the education is quality or not. So schools like Tyndale and Chafer have never pursued that kind of accreditation, nor would they ever have any reason to do that. Um, Calvary uh, has over the years they've had a Christian accreditation which we maintain, and they've also got regional accreditation or secular accreditation as some would call it. So we have both of those accreditations which which allow our students and graduates to have significant opportunities. Now uh, we're unwilling to compromise in order to maintain those accreditations, and if there's ever a time where we're forced to, then we will drop the accreditations. 
But so far, God has provided us opportunity to use these accreditations and provide excellent and marketable education and certifications that allow our students to get involved in vocations. Uh, and so Calvary has some neat opportunities and a really important platform, I think, to be able to educate students, providing them a major in Bible and theology, and then at the same time providing them a major in their various vocational uh, areas. So one of the one of the expressions of that is in Calvary's uh, commitment to vocation as ministry. You remember that mission to prepare Christians to live and serve in the church and in the world, according to the biblical worldview. Part of that is is being committed to vocation as as ministry, and we see this in a lot of ways in Scripture. Uh, you know, I, I think about, for example, the uh, Acts eighteen two through four, the last passage that's listed here with Aquila and Priscilla as tent makers, and and so they're engaging in vocation, and at the same time, they're very significant servants and and uh, and in some contexts, leaders having a great impact on on the church. And I've always appreciated their example, and of course, uh, Paul uh, likewise uh, making tents so that when he's serving the Thessalonian church. Uh, he's not drawing an income, even though he has a right to, to ask for such a thing. So it's pretty incredible to see biblically some of the models that are there and how vocation matters. And especially now in, in the United States with there being so many people who don't even know who Jesus is. The mission field is here all around us. Uh, once upon a time, we were sending missionaries out to other countries because everybody here knew of Christ. Uh, the, the biblical literacy and Christian literacy was very high. But in the last 40 years, it has just dropped like a rock. And, and it's, uh, it is actually uh, at, at an all-time low, biblical literacy. So the mission field is here. And there are disciplines and, and uh, areas of vocation that have, have really largely been untouched by Christians. Some, some areas that it's difficult for Christians to even be involved in now. So we're, we're trying to have an impact, training up students to get into these areas, uh, be able to exegete the scriptures and make disciples uh, and do these vocations with, with excellence. And Colossians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 10.31 are both very similar, and they're encouraging believers that whatever you're doing, do it in the name of Christ and do it for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 30, uh, describes how uh, there's only three things. There's only three things to do in life. You ever thought about this? Only three things. There's eating, there's drinking, and there's everything else. That's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So uh, these three things, we're, we're not really teaching our students to eat or drink. We assume they, they have that figured out. Um, and we try to help them learn how to manage that a little bit. But we're trying to help them on the other side of... The, Whatever else you do, we're trying to help them grow in their understanding of how to do vocation well in service and in the glory of God. So vocation as ministry is an important uh, commitment. And it, uh, it, especially for overseas ministry now, it's, uh, that's a really important way to do that. Countries are becoming more and more restrictive. Uh, it's harder and harder for Christians to have ministry. In fact, 
Uh, I talked with several today earlier with uh, with the fellowship that uh, that we had, the, the ministry fellowship that we had earlier today. Uh, several who have ministries that uh, they're just uh, business names. There's no indication whatsoever that they're ministries because the countries they're involved in uh, don't allow Christianity. But because they're engaging in vocation and business, they're able to do those those ministries very effectively. So that's a real key. And it's related to another aspect of that third distinctive for us, that, that marketable, usable, high-quality education is that we're committed to global outreach. We're, we're committed to not simply staying at home, but to reaching out and having impact worldwide. This is a picture of a, a group of students that, uh, that are in uh, Corinth, and they're at the Bema. Um, and it's a really interesting scene there. This was uh, about a year ago. And, of course, uh, obviously we're thinking great commission there, making disciples, and, uh, and we see this, this pattern that, uh, that Christ laid out in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, where he tells those uh, those early believers to start in Jerusalem, the Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth, right? Start at home and, and work your way out. Now, he had a plan for those particular disciples to do that ministry uh, worldwide. And as a, as a secondary application, there's a kind of, there's a neat principle there that as you're engaged in ministry, you're not starting in Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and, and the outermost parts of the earth, right? You're, you're not there, you're here. Um, but we have opportunity to start where we are, have an impact, and then as God allows us opportunity, broaden that impact. So being committed to global outreach, Calvary has had, I think they have alumni in, in 60-something countries serving uh, in ministry and or vocation, uh, vocational ministry. So there's a, there's a significant commitment for us there. Uh, the final distinctive of these four key foundational distinctives for us is is that Calvary is a place for growth, not just a place to learn. Uh, it's easy in higher education to fall into this aspect of simply gaining knowledge so that you can get a job or you can do something. But the idea is is that we're committed to making Calvary a place not just for learning but a place for actual spiritual growth. And uh, that's a very, very important part of what we're doing. It's really the desired outcome. And so as we work through this, it has uh, some expressions. First of all, it's shown in our commitment to discipleship. And, you know, a couple of key concepts here. Second Timothy 2.2 is talking about uh, communicating these things to faithful men. And then there's an expectation. Who will be able to teach others also, right? It's this cycle um, and even though the term disciple and, and discipleship aren't found after Acts in the New Testament, this concept that we see in 2 Timothy 2.2, it is, is uh, very much that idea. Uh, and because we're working with Christians, we're trying to help them grow. We're trying to help them come. We're trying to come alongside the local church, help pastors, help those churches, and, and provide these these many students opportunities to get plugged into those churches, have ministry responsibilities, uh, be serving as part of the body of Christ, and and help guide them academically as they're doing those things. Of course, Titus 2, we see the same thing where uh, you have men and women being discipled and doing discipleship work. Very important uh, there, so that commitment to discipleship is is a key expression. 
And we have uh, uh, some some really neat opportunities that God has blessed us with. We have this this campus in in Kansas City. It's our main campus. Um, it's uh, roughly uh, what we own is roughly 37 acres, uh, and uh, it's it's an old Air Force base that uh, when the uh, when the military left, uh, they uh, they built some really nice facilities like this four-story dorm building you can see kind of in the background and they built it and before they even occupied it uh, they knew they were leaving they built it and they decided to to uh, donate it and so uh, uh, Calvary was on the other side of the street and they ended up uh, God blessed Calvary with this campus so we these acres um, uh, God blessed us with Calvary didn't have to go into debt uh, for those so we have a number of students on the campus there we also have an online campus uh, ministry. All of our classes are blended, meaning just like we have here in this room, cameras and, uh, and audio so that uh, uh, people can be listening in real time. We have the same thing with every class at Calvary. Uh, so our students, our online and campus students are getting the same faculty the same experience, and they come together in the online campus. They're watching the same lectures, and so there's really no difference. There's there's little difference between the experiences on campus and in our online campus, and that's been really important. So Calvary's now able to offer those degrees all over the all over the world. Uh, last year, God blessed us with this incredible uh, campus out in Colorado, uh, about uh, 50 minutes away from the uh, Denver airport. Uh, this is a 130,000 square foot uh, on five acre uh, building that uh, we call our innovation center because on the first floor we have our academic operations. Second floor, we bring in businesses and ministries to collaborate and work together. And then third floor, we're launching Calvary University Academy K through 12 that will be blended and allow us to provide uh, Christian education at the K through 12 uh, level worldwide. So these are a few of the things that God has provided us with and has us busy. We've also got a really vibrant early college program where we're working with uh, high schoolers, allowing them an opportunity to study and earn uh, credit and get this fantastic biblical foundation. So God has blessed Calvary and, and provided incredible opportunities for us. We exist to serve the church and to come alongside the local churches and uh, we, we desire to be faithful in that. So it's, it's great to be able to share that with you and, and help you to uh, just, just know our, our commitment to God's word and uh, maybe see a little bit of our perspective on, on why that matters. So thank you for, uh, for uh, keeping us in prayer, as, as I know you will be doing. And uh, we'll be looking at ways that we can partner with Chafer and work together. In fact, I should say we do, in fact, have an articulation agreement with Chafer so that Chafer Seminary's degrees are all recognized by, by Calvary University. So we, we got that in place in this past year. So we're excited about that and uh, very like-minded and uh, look forward to, to working together uh, with you all as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me, uh, let me just thank the Lord, if I may. Before I do that, though... Robbie, what were what what'd you have, sir? Okay, let me close this in prayer then. Precious Father, we are so appreciative of your incredible greatness. We thank you for your word that uh, you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know the fear of the Lord, the fear of you through your word. 
and that uh, that is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding for us. Thank you, Lord. And as we as we uh, know you better and we understand what you have uh, planned for us and designed for us, Lord, please help us to be faithful with the various stewardships. You give us all different tasks and different roles, and we want to be faithful with those, Lord. So uh, we're very, very grateful. And I just ask that you'd make us faithful in those, Lord. Thank you for... Uh, West Houston Bible Church and what you're doing here. Uh, we're so appreciative, Lord. We pray that you'd bless the, the people here, the family, uh, and just encourage and strengthen them as uh, these are challenging times uh, for, for for all of us. Uh, just thank you for, for Chafer Seminary and how you're using that. Pray that you'd uh, just, uh, again, strengthen and encourage all involved. And, and Lord, help us all to uh, to apply the unity that you've given us in, in diligence in serving one another. So we just ask that you'd help us to, to have the wisdom and see those opportunities. So we, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for what we've learned about uh, about the Davidic covenant and the promises that you've made and, and the certainty uh, that, that, uh, that comes with your word. Lord, we're grateful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.